Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. I want you to take your Bibles or iPhones, whatever you're using, and I want you to open with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and more specifically verse 31 to 32. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 to 32. So the last, really this is actually going to be our sixth week on this. We've been engaging, again I know for some of you this has been, uh, um, you've heard this, but I just want to make sure we're on the same page, that we've been engaging in a teaching series entitled Bridal Generation, and it's really been fueled by the, um, uh, by the uh, understanding that if you look in the scriptures, when, whenever it references Jesus' return, it typically emphasizes him as bridegroom and as the church functioning as a bride. We see it in Revelation at the end. I mean, the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, Hosea declared it. It's, it's all throughout the scriptures, and we're actually going to see it again freshly today. And, and so we've been on a journey saying, okay, there's so much happening in the world, and my heart was just stirred to say, man, I, I feel like... I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but I'm definitely, I feel there's an intensity of the shakings that are taking place. And one of the things we see is that the church, as these things are happening, is going to function more and more as a bride. And so we've been on a journey to say, what does it mean to be the bride of Christ, especially a ready bride? Because that's one of the things that Jesus focuses on. And I just, I want to share this, that one of the blessings I think that's happened over these last few months is the fact that um, I just feel that that messages and sermons that do not have a substance are not going to cut it anymore. That uh, people really are, they're, they're going through things and there's, there's a longing in hearts for something that can really connect and speak to the pain that they're going through. And uh, I just feel that what we have, what we've been working through is really an in-season word to know Jesus as bridegroom and to really say and really understand what it means as a church to be a bride. And so this is week six. We've been discovering the bridal message, which is that Jesus has a passion, right? As, as king, he has power. As judge, he has zeal. But as bridegroom, he's coming with passion. He's coming back for an equally yoked bride. And so we've just been discovering his heart for his people, his passion for them, his desire for them, his commitment for them. And what we've been seeing is that when we encounter that desire, it's actually causing us to give a wholehearted, extravagant response back to him. And so the church, the bridal generation, is going to be on fire with zeal and pure, set apart. It's going to be beautiful and glorious, and that's the journey that we are on. And so what I want to do is a little bit different today. We're not going to be in the Songs of Solomon. That's the book that we've primarily been in the last few weeks uh, we will get back into that uh, next week and, and weeks to come. But what I want to do is I actually want to highlight another portion of Scripture that teaches us some more about what it means to be a bride. And I'm telling you, I think it's going to be it's going to be fun. And it's going to be really good. So I hope you're ready to learn. Get your notebooks out or whatever you can do to take notes. And uh, here we go. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. This will kind of be a launching pad for us. And then it's going to lead us into Genesis, which is ultimately going to be where we're going to camp out and it will be our... Our, our, our primary scripture. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, if you're not familiar with it, it's arguably the greatest discourse on marriage. Paul begins to describe what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife, and it's, it's, really, it's really incredible. But along the way, what begins to happen is as Paul is describing natural marriage, he begins to say something. He says, this is actually a great mystery. He says, it actually points to the union that God wants with us. And he says, a husband actually begins to represent Jesus, the bridegroom, and a wife actually begins to represent uh, the church who is, who is the bride. And it's almost as if what Paul's really getting at is saying, guys, God instituted marriage so that when he would come, we would actually understand and have some type of, of imagery for what he's looking for. It's as almost as if God set it in motion in the beginning and said to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, let's, let's put marriage in place so that when you come, they'll have some type of understanding of what you are looking for. And so this is what it says in verse 31. Paul begins to just kind of bring his, his teaching on marriage to an end. I want you to hear this. It's going to just set a really important foundation. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. An incredible gospel revelation. But then he says this in verse 32. He says, this is a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church. 
So what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning, if you're writing a message, if you, if you like titles or not, I want to talk about unveiling the great mystery. Unveiling the great mystery. Paul says that marriage is a great mystery. Now, I just, I need you to stay with me before we go into Genesis 2. We need to clarify something. When we think of mystery in our culture, we typically think of something that is unknown. But in the biblical culture, a mystery is not something that's just unknown. It's something that, that can only be known through revelation. In other words, Ephesians 3.9 says that the mysteries of God have been hidden in the heart of God for an appointed time of which then he will speak it and reveal what it's always been about. That means before the foundations of the earth, God had something birthed in his heart that no man knew what it was about. We didn't know where it was going, but God did. Not, not even the angels knew it. The Old Testament prophets, they prophesied, but in part, they didn't fully grasp what it was all about. Not even Satan knows where it's all going, but God then began to reveal, and Paul says, this is the great mystery, that from the beginning, God has prepared a, a wedding feast. This is Matthew 22, where Jesus speaks to the people of Israel. One of his last public addresses, and he says, guys, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. It's like a marriage. And he says, it's been set by a, by a father who so desires for you to come. There's been a wedding plan from ages past that speaks to the whole point of humanity and where it's leading to. And Jesus, and what Paul, Paul says here is that this is, is, the, is, the, is the mystery of God that's now been revealed. The way that a husband and wife come and cleave as one and live in unity forever, Paul says now we finally understand what Jesus and what God has always been after. And he says this, last part on this, and then we'll move forward, but I want you to get this. He says it's a great mystery. Now, there are four mysteries that are talked about in the New Testament. One of the mysteries that Paul talks about is the resurrected body. Incredible reality that Jesus had a bodily resurrection, a physical body, which means that we too will have a physical body resurrection. And the hope of a new heaven, new earth, Paul says this is a mystery that we now know. God has revealed this to us. Another mystery that Paul says is the fact that Christ lives in us. He says, this is a mystery now that we've understood, that, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ comes to dwell within us when we confess Christ. It's a great mystery. The another mystery, he says, is that Jews and Gentiles are on a track of oneness and unity. He says, before there's been ages past of great hostility, he says, but here's another mystery God's revealing, that Jesus is the cosmic unifier, and Jews and Gentiles are actually going to find a place of unity and oneness in Jesus. He says, that's another great mystery, or I should say mystery. But there's, those mysteries are amazing. They're significant. They're worthy of our study and our attention. They're, they're, they're beautiful. But not one of them ever received the title of a great mystery. Not one of them ever received the title of a profound mystery. When, when Jesus says that, or Paul, speaking by the Spirit, says this is a great mystery, he's not saying that it's difficult to understand. He's saying that this mystery compared to the others is set apart. This is different. He says, this one right here in the heart of God, this one's dear to God. They're all important, but he says, this one is significant to the Lord in a very special way. It's precious to him. What is it? It's the fact that Jesus and the church is, again, a fulfillment of a man and a woman coming together and cleaving to one another. And now we understand the union that God wants with us. And so what we're about to do is go on a, on a journey to explore what this great mystery is, and begin to understand in a greater context, is I don't know about you, but I want to know. I want to know if this is what God says. This is where it's all leading. I want to know this in a greater depth. And here's where we're going to go. We're going to go to Genesis because verse 31 that I just quoted, Paul actually quoted and cited an exact verse from Genesis 2. Very, very important. In other words, what Paul is saying is the great mystery, if we want to really understand it in its context, he says, now we can go back and see the creation of Adam and Eve coming together as one. And Paul says, now we can properly interpret that as a picture of Jesus and the church. Yes, it was natural marriage. Yes, Adam and Eve are real people. But he says, now we know that the fuller meaning is that Adam actually serves as a type for the second Adam, who is Christ. And Eve actually serves as a type for the church. And I'm telling you, when we begin to see the parallels to what took place then and what it means for us today, it is so beautiful to see uh, what is at the heart of marriage and what it means to be a bride. So I want you to turn with me to Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And this will be our, our primary text for today. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. 
And again, we're talking about unveiling the great mystery. This mystery is set apart. And Paul now tells us that we can understand Genesis 2 in its proper context. Genesis 2, there's really three ways that we can approach this. And one side, it gives us a, an historical record of creation. That's one way you can approach this text, right? We're seeing how God starts everything. We're seeing the place that man has and, and how marriage functions within that. We also understand that, that through this text, God gives us a revelation of natural marriage, how that works. That's a proper way of how to read this text. But now again, we realize that the third meeting, the way we're going to approach this is that this actually becomes a prophetic picture and type and shadow for Jesus and the church. Adam representing Jesus, the second Adam, and Eve representing the church. And this is, is just glorious. So we're going to start in verse 18. I'm going to read this through in its entirety, and then we're going to just highlight a few key pieces that really teach us, again, what bridal identity is. Um, last thing I want to share before we jump in is that there are four Old Testament women that are widely uh, believed to be pictures of the bride of Christ. We actually shared one a few weeks ago. It was Rebecca in Genesis 24 and the extravagant response that she gave to the call to marry, uh, to, to marry uh, um, uh, Abraham's son. We also have Esther. We have Ruth. And today we're going to see Eve. Eve is going to be a beautiful picture uh, another aspect of how we are to be the bride of Christ. So here it is, verse 18. I want you to follow this because I'm going to pull out some really deep parallels here. Remember, we're approaching this as, as a revelation of Christ and us. And it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him, suitable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Verse 20, so Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So what you have is that Adam is actually ruling and reigning in the garden. God has imparted a measure of authority for him to be able to rule in the garden. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus. But then verse 21 says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Verse 22, Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. That's also important. Verse 23, And Adam said, This is now. Listen to how Adam responds when he sees his bride. He says, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, this is what Paul quoted in Ephesians, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And finally in verse 25 it says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, I feel what we're going to do today in these few minutes is we're going to break some misconceptions that we have about God and how he relates to us. I feel that one of the major things that's going to happen is we're going to break shame over our lives because we're going to see this as one of the primary messages of the bridal identity through, through the lens of Eve. So where I want to get to is eventually that verse 25, but I want to share a few things first that really, I think, just prepare us to have that shame lifted so that we can cleave to God in complete oneness. So I just, I really want you to prepare your hearts and just listen into this. I'm going to start right here in verse 18. I want you to capture, I want you to see the desire of God to give you to his son. For the father looks at Adam and says, it's not good for man to be alone. And what this means is that the father has a desire in his heart to give his son a bride. This is seen throughout the scriptures from beginning to end. And what it means for us is that God the Father has a zeal in his heart to bring a bride to his son, which would be me and you. Now let me be clear. When it says that Adam was alone, Jesus is not lonely. He is not saying, Lord, Father, please bring me a date or something along those lines. What it means, what it means for Jesus is that Jesus has a desire in his heart he doesn't have any needs. He's perfectly content in the fellowship he has with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But what it says is he desires a partner. In fact, it says that Adam was ruling in the garden. 
but he had no partner. He had no one uh, suitable to him. And it's a picture of what the scriptures speak often about, about how we will co-reign with Christ, how we are raised and seated with Christ. It's a picture of which God is establishing a bride to be partnered and joined to Jesus Christ. And so we see right off the bat that the father is zealous to prepare a bride for his son, which is me and you. And let me tell you this, redemptive history, if you go through the scriptures, right, there are many books over many years with many languages and many authors, but there's one primary thread that runs through all the scriptures. It's called the redemptive historical arc, which means God is redeeming and restoring everything. That's the main theme through it all. And at the heart of the redemptive story is that the Father is preparing a bride. Listen to me. I want you to catch this. This is so, so beautiful. In the beginning, right here what we're reading, we see that God creates Adam, a son. And he places him in a garden, which is a place of perfection, a place of pleasure. And what does he do? He gives him a wife to enjoy. Do you know how it ends in Revelation chapter 22? It ends in another Eden-like place, a paradise. It calls the new Jerusalem. And it says the spirit and the bride, that's us, are crying out for the bridegroom to come. It all ends in another Eden with a husband and wife coming together. But this time it's Jesus and the church. This was put in place from the beginning so God, now we know the mystery's been unveiled. God says, you see what I do with Adam and Eve? This is what it's always been to. I want to join you to my son in such oneness. I want you to totally abandon yourself to him. I don't know about you, but this is beautiful where it's leading. It says in verse 22, which just adds to the father's desire, it says that he brings the woman to man. This is what's been happening throughout history. It happens even today as God will touch hearts, is that the God has been wooing people by the spirit to bring them to his son. It's what he did in my life. It's what he's done in many lives here. And if you don't know Jesus, he'll do it again today. The Father is drawing you by the Spirit to the Son because he wants a bride for his Son. But what kind of partner does he want? This is so important. What kind of, what kind of helper is he bringing? It says in that opening verse, he says, I will make a helper comparable to him, suitable to him. In other words, what God is saying is, Adam, I'm going to bring one that fits him. I'm, I'm going to bring one that's according to his heart. I'm going to bring one that, that he can connect with in a very dynamic way. Adam, when I form this bride for you, you're going to look at her and you're going to say, I like her. She's like me. I can open my heart to her and, and she can open back up to me. This is, listen, you've got to catch this because this is a revelation now we know. It's a mystery that's been unveiled of how Jesus sees his bride, which is you. He sees and he says, wait a minute, I like this. I can connect with my bride. I can give myself to my bride, and they can give themselves wholly to me. He says, my heart can resonate with her. This is why it says in Ephesians 5 that just as a husband cherishes his, his wife or his own flesh, which is his, it says to his wife, so Christ cherishes the church. He cherishes us as his bride. He cherishes the gift that the Father has given him. Man, if this, stuff like this gets settled in our heart, it will change your walk with God forever. When you understand, when he sees you, how, what he actually speaks over you. It says in verse 23, just to further this, that when Adam saw his wife, what he say? He says, this is one bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You can hear that Adam's heart is exhilarated when he sees a partner that is compatible to him. In other words, Adam sees his wife and says, I, I can connect with her. I have a future with this one. I've had dominion, and that's great, but this one I can actually really engage in a relationship with. This is the way God sees us. This is the way Jesus sees you when you were in Christ. And we're going to break some misconceptions of God, people thinking God's primarily angry or sad with them. You need to see the delight that he takes over you when you are in him. And that's where we're going because it's going to destroy shame, which get in the way of you cleaving to him. In fact, I find this amazing as I was reading through this. It says, we know that Adam was formed from the dust, right? It, everyone knows this. But it also just said that all the animals, uh, the, the, the beasts of the field are formed from the dust. But woman is not formed from the dust. Now, ladies might get really excited about this. <laughs> Man's formed from the dust, but not woman. Everything is formed from the dust, but not woman. Woman was what? She was taken from the body of man. This is, this is so prophetic for the church. We are one flesh with Christ. 
We are his body. This is the picture that it's saying. Everything else was formed from the dust, but not the bride. The bride came from him as we have come from Christ. Man, this is good news. Listen, I want to go even deeper so you catch this, this, uh, these, these parallels. I want you to see the extent, the desire that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit went to to make you a bride or to make it available for you today. It says that, it says that when God wanted to bring a bride to Adam, what did he do? He put Adam into a deep sleep. And then it says when he was sleeping, he opened up his side, took out a rib, healed him, and then from that rib made a woman, right? So listen to me. Let's fast forward 4,000 years from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now we have Jesus, the second Adam. Do you know what God did? You know what Jesus submitted to in order that he could have a bride? The scriptures say that sleep is another way that you can express death. Have you ever heard that in the scripture? Paul actually says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. It was an expression that they used. In other words, the first Adam was put to sleep, but so was the second Adam, Christ. He was put to the sleep of death. He went on the cross for us. And what did they do when he was on the cross? When he was on the cross, the Roman officers came to confirm that he was dead. And how did they do it? They pierced his side. His rib was pierced. And they knew that then he was dead. And guess what? Because he died, then the father healed him like he healed the, healed the first Adam. How? He resurrected him. And he went and ascended to the Father so that the Spirit could be poured out. And with the Spirit being poured out, the church was formed. Who's that? The bride. The second Adam was put to the sleep of death for our sins, pierced on our side. And from that, a bride was formed. God is serious when it comes to preparing a bride. See, we, we take this message, and some, like I've shared before, get offended by it. This is not a weak, light message. This is what it's always been after. And the second Adam, Jesus, gave up his life so that we could come near. Oh, but it gets even better when we look at this. I want to go deeper into this because it says that, how did Adam go to sleep? Did Adam just fall asleep? It said God caused him to go to sleep. God caused him. You see, the cross, the cross is not Satan's idea. He thought it was, but it's not. This is important. Romans 8.32 says that God did not spare his own son, but he what? He delivered him up for us. You see, you need to know that the cross and actually Jesus dying for us is actually God's plan because then you can be confident that it is fully uh, able to keep you. It's fully able to hold you. It is sufficient to wipe away everything. Satan had no doing with it. This is God's doing. And just as he put the first Adam to sleep, it was God who put the second Adam to sleep. And Jesus willfully submitted and said, I'll go for them. Why is this important? Because God, God refused his son Jesus. He refused the perfect son. You know why? So that he would never refuse you. He'll never refuse you now. When you are in Christ, you can be confident that when you come before him, washed in his blood, asking for mercy, he will never deny you because he already denied Jesus for us so that Jesus became our substitute. And so it was the Father who put Jesus to sleep. But then it gets even better, I think. Because when, when was Adam put to sleep? Was Adam put to sleep before the fall or after? Was Adam put to sleep before sin or after sin? <laughs> he was actually put to sleep before the sin. Revelation 13.8 says that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the earth. What this means is not that Jesus died before he came to the cross. It means that the plan for your salvation was already finalized before you even took a breath on this earth. He already saw your sin. He saw my sin and said, I'm already going to lay down my son. Jesus already had a yes in his spirit for you. And see, it's not about you or me. We hang our heads and say, I'm just not worthy. It was never about our worthiness. It's about his worthiness. And he purchased you. He purchased a bride to have your whole heart. We've got to give him what he's worthy of. It's not just as great as this is. It's not just an hour or so on a Sunday, man. He's after relationship with us. Let's give him what he's worthy of and say, Jesus, I want to I wanna use that imagery. I want to be a faithful bride to you. It says in verse 24, to just go even deeper, it says that a man shall leave his father's household. Is this not what Jesus did for us? <laughs> he left heaven for us. He left his glory for us. He left everything for us and laid it down. Oh, look upon the one who gave up everything for you. When you do this, it will cause you to give everything to him. If you have a hard time responding wholeheartedly to Jesus, I tell you this, it won't be by fear. 
That, there's a place that at some points, yes, when in doubt, if it's just fear, then go for it. But listen, he's got a better motivator. It's to be moved by his passion for you. That, that's something that will be permanent, that can't be shaken. Bernard of Clairvaux said something amazing. I, I love reading him. And he said this, listen, speaking of Christ, he said, Christ won me entirely. How? By giving himself entirely to me. <laughs> that's how the gospel works. He says, Christ won me entirely. In other words, I gave everything that I have to Christ. Why? Because I got a glimpse of how he gave everything to me. The only right response to that is I want to yield my life completely to him. And so here, I want to read verse 25. This is the last place I really want us to speak into and camp out on. All of that I shared is just kind of just to provoke your heart. But this is, this is what I'm about to share is the essence of the bridal message through, through Eve. Rebecca was about wholehearted, extravagant response. Here's what Eve's message is. I want you to see verse 25. Man, when I started to see this, I was so encouraged of what God has made available for us and what he's always been after. Look at this. Now that we know it's such a beautiful picture of us and Jesus, verse 25 says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. <laughs> this is the bridal message of Eve. This is a revelation of what it means to be a bride. We were meant to be connected with Christ. It says naked and without shame. Shame was never meant to be in our hearts so that we could connect with the Lord. Naked means to an openness with Jesus. It's, it's that type of expression. There's a vulnerability with him. To be unashamed means that we were created to live confident in his love, knowing who we are in him so that we could respond rightly and give him our whole hearts. This Beloved, this is the heart of Jesus. He, he, is, he desires a bride that shame has been dealt with so that you would come completely to him and not just give a piece of you, not just give, uh, uh, be reserved when you come towards him. Jesus, I, I just felt the Lord saying, Jesus gave up everything to free you from shame. For what purpose? So that you would cleave to him and become one with him. He, he spilt his precious blood not just so that we would just be amazed at that, but it was, for, it was unto something. So that we would not hold back, but no, wait a minute. Look at the passion. Look at the, look at the work that he did. Hebrews goes so deep into the sufficiency of Christ's work for the purpose that shame would be uprooted from your heart and you would have confidence to come before God and walk confidently with him day by day by day. And this is the message that Eve reveals to us. That God has always been after a bride, that shame has been dealt with so that we can walk with him. Sin has distorted this, but Jesus paid the price to deal with that. So what does Satan do? What does an enemy do? He works overtime to condemn and cause shame in your heart so that you would draw back from God and not live as the bride that he has always intended you to be. Satan works overtime to strip us of our confidence in the Lord. The scriptures speak over and over about this. If you are not confident in the love of God, if you're not confident in the work of Christ for you, I can promise you this, you will never fully give yourself over to the Lord. Why? Because inherently we know that God sits on a throne, which means that God is a judge. And if I feel like my sins have not been fully dealt with, I will not come before him out of fear that there's still punishment left. But when you understand that Jesus paid the full price and you know that you can come without shame anymore, you will just embrace him fully and thoroughly with all that you have. Listen, I've seen in my life, oftentimes we, we miss, we don't see that we're operating in shame. I feel like shame is one of the primary things that Christians struggle with. We don't fully grasp it, and here's why, because we give it a virtuous name. We say, I'm really humble. I'm really sincere. We think that feeling badly and hanging our head is, is actually a sign of humility. But listen to me. It's, that's what I said before. It is not about us. It's never been about our worthiness. It's always been about his. Jesus didn't pay a price for a bride to hang their head and stay from a distance. He paid a price for a head to be up, eyes beholding him, and hearts open to say, I give you everything. That's what he's worthy of. Humility is actually understanding. Say, man, I don't deserve this, but God, I'm just going to respond to what you want. I'm going to give you your inheritance. Do you know that where is inheritance? That's the bride is his inheritance, it says. This is his reward. I'm going to give him what he's worthy of. I, I believe in my heart that one of the most powerful longings of the human heart, and I think this ties into, I just want to share a little bit more in this shame before we close, because I really felt the Lord on this part. 
I feel that one of the primary longings of the human heart is to know that God delights over us, is to know that God actually, he likes what he sees. Despite the weakness, despite the ups and downs, he actually enjoys it. Even when we're growing through weakness, there are, listen, it is possible for you to, to uh, love someone, it's possible for you to enjoy a relationship and not still approve of someone's, every area of someone's life. Like, when I look at my kids, there are things in my kids' life that I can see that I say, man, I wanna, I wanna focus on that. I wanna help them grow in that. That's something that needs to go. But guess what? Do I ever stop enjoying them? Do I ever stop delighting over them as my child? Never. This is a significant understanding because if you don't, if you don't get this, in your weakness, you'll draw back from God. Rather than running to him and you bring your imperfections to his perfection and that's how he changes you. And so I believe that we really gotta, ca- gotta catch a heart of God that he delights in us and rejoices over us as we're growing in the Lord. And I just, I wanna share these two scriptures. You, don't, you just hear it. You don't need to even uh, turn there. But just listen to this. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 62 of what would happen when the Messiah comes. And he kind of describes the day and he says this. He says, no longer, speaking of the people of God, no longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate. No longer will you be empty and barren and broken. <laughs> he says, You'll never, no longer will the shame be over your life when the Messiah comes. He says, but you will be called Hetzpah, which means this, for the Lord will take delight in you. He says, when the Messiah comes, no longer will you be desolate, barren, unfruitful. He says, but when he comes, your name's going to change. And it's going to be this, the Lord delights over you now. And then he says this in verse 5. I love this for the series that we're in. He says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Man, we've got to catch a revelation of the bridegroom rejoicing over us. It will destroy shame in your heart. Zechariah 3.17, it gives a a picture of God's end-time restoration of his people that will flow from his heart of rejoicing and gladness. This is how God will restore things. And what does he say? He says, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. We've got to catch a revelation that as we approaching Jesus' return, that the way God is restoring, healing, driving out shame, is actually he's rejoicing and delighting over us. And the more we catch it, I'm telling you, it's easy to speak these things in my own life. It's easy to even preach this to an extent and not be settled with this in my heart. But let's take these realities and come before God and really position ourselves, say, Lord, I don't want to move until this this reality is something that I am walking in. Because here's the deal. (laughs) And again, I've seen this in my life. I've shared this briefly, but I, wanna, I want you to get this. Sadly, I think many Christians operate in, in one of two ways when it comes to relating to God. We have one or two unhealthy thought processes. As a born-again believer, I know I've been here. I typically think God is looking at me one of two ways. He's either really sad when he looks at me or he's really mad when he looks at me. In other words, when he looks at me, I'm, almost, I'm always like right on the edge of God just kicking me out of the kingdom. I'm always just right there where he's like, man, one more thing and I'm just done with you. Or I feel like when he looks at me, he's always disappointed. He's like, man, you just can never get it right. And I'm just, I, you just grieve me when I look at you. And the more I talk with people and Christians and I really get to hear what's going on in their heart, a lot of what fuels their sinning is that they're hiding from God because they think this is the way God is viewing them. And they don't realize that God primarily rejoices and delights over his children. This is so, so crucial. David, I think, is one of the best examples of this. How many have ever heard that David was a man after God's own heart? What does this mean? Well, one, it means that David David had a heart of obedience. He really wanted to follow God in all that he did. He was after the things of God. That's absolutely true, biblical, that is so important. But I think there's a second thing to it that we often overlook that's critical. For David to be a man after God's own heart, meant that David wanted to know the heart of God. It means that David wanted to know what moved God's heart. He said, I want to know what pleases God. I want to know what displeases God. David says, I don't want to just know what God does. Yes, we want to know that, but I want to know why he does it. In other words, I know that God went to the cross. Okay, I know what he did. But David would say, but I want to know why he did it. Why would he give up his life for me? David said, here's my life focus. I'm a man after God's heart. I want to know what he's about 
what moves and what he likes. And guess, this is what I find amazing, is that the man who made his life pursuit to know God's heart, to really know God, the person of God, is the man that I think pursued him harder than anyone else I see in the Bible outside of Jesus. And so here's what I've learned then. That means there must be something about knowing God's heart that will cause you not to draw back, but actually want to give more of yourself to him. So I look at the scriptures of David and I say, what does David know about God's heart that I don't know? That when I fail, when I sin, I run from God rather than bringing my heart to him like he does. Look at the Psalms. David in his deepest weakness, in his greatest sin, did David run and hide? David, you see the expressions of how he brought his heart before the Lord and said, Lord, take whatever you want, but not thy Holy Spirit. David, he longed for God. There was something that David knew about God's heart that when he failed, he didn't run from God. He said, no, I'm confident in his love over me, that he delights over me. He's enjoying in me. Even though I'm still weak and growing, he's still delighting, not over the sin, but over the relationship. And so I can walk with God. And this is how you grow. And this is how God sanctifies us. And this is how shame gets crushed in our hearts. I think one of the, one of the things I want to just drill deeper in this that's really important is that I want you to follow this and just, you got to follow this train of thought, is there is a, there's a big difference between immaturity and rebellion. And a lot of times we don't distinguish the two, but it's important because God responds differently to immaturity and rebellion. We see that in the scriptures. A lot of times we're confused because outwardly immaturity and rebellion can look the same, but in actuality they flow from two different heart responses. This is, this is critical because a lot of times we are thinking that, we hear the lie of the enemy saying, you are this rebellious person and God is ready to smite you. And you don't realize that actually God sees an immature believer who's learning to grow and walk, learning to what it looks like to be a born again believer. And that would actually, would just again, change the way we respond with the Lord. And I think one of the best ways to illustrate it is this. In the Old Testament, there are, um, there, there's a distinction between clean animals and unclean. And one of the unclean animals is a pig. One of the clean animals is considered sheep. Now what's interesting is that pig and sheep both play in the mud, or they'll get stuck in the mud. But what you'll find is that the sheep will begin to kick. The sheep will begin to struggle to get out of the mud. And when the shepherd comes and brings the sheep out of the mud, if I could use some poetic license, the sheep would say, I never wanna go back there again. That was awful. That's immaturity. That's growing in our weakness. The pig enjoys the mud. The pig, as the, as the shepherd takes him out, the shepherd turns his back, and what does the pig do? He runs right back into it. He looks for mud holes. That's rebellion, right? The, the rebellious heart just says, I know it's right. I know what the Lord's speaking, but I'm just, I'm staying right here. I'm not going to respond to that. But immaturity is different. And God, God, he delights over our relationship as we are growing in the Lord. So that means as you are growing in the Lord and learning how to be a faithful follower of Christ, as you are having setbacks along the way, God is still with you and still enjoying you. And this is how he's sanctifying you and changing you. Matthew 26, 41, Jesus said something important. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's very interesting. He says, it's possible to have a willing spirit, but your flesh can be really weak. What does that mean? Peter's one of the best examples of this. Peter said, Lord, if everyone denies you, I will never deny you. The Lord saw a willing spirit in Peter. He saw it. He said, Peter, I see that. But Peter, your, your flesh is also really weak, and you're going to encounter how weak your flesh is. But the Lord was with Peter through all of that. I, I, this, I just think this is so, so important because the willing spirit is a yes in our spirit. And a lot of times we think that God is not pleased with us, God is not with us until we have complete victory in an area of our life. Now listen to me. We want complete victory in areas of our life. We want, that's the process that we're on. But God sees the yes in your spirit even as you're still in the process of having that complete victory. Even as you are, are growing and stumbling, he sees the heart of the person that says, man, Lord, I desire to give you everything. I desire to walk in purity with you, God. I know I went into that, Lord, but... God, I don't, I hate that I do that. Like, Lord, just here's my heart. Like, help me to overcome that. God says, son, daughter, I see the yes in your spirit. Your flesh is weak and you're in a process, but just stay with me. Stay with it. Don't quit. Don't give up. Like, stay committed with me. This, these are the things that I, I didn't know God like this. And so, again, I would just give up. So many say, what's the point? I can't do it. I'll just go back to a carnal lifestyle. 
And God's saying, no, my son, don't give up. I see the yes in your spirit. Do you know that the yes in your spirit is actually the beginning of victory? It's not just when it's perfection, because if that's the case on this side of eternity, we'll probably never reach that. So the yet, God sees the yes in your spirit as the beginning of victory, saying, there it is right there. He's hungry. She's hungry. She wants it. Yeah, she's going to fall. She's going to stumble. But, man, she's really going for it. I, I, wanna, I just want to finish with this right here. We need to have a, a new definition. Very important. Last thing to this. The enemy, we need to have a new definition of, of hypocrisy because the, the enemy wants to speak that you're a hopeless hypocrite when you fail. And that's, the, again, a, a voice that I hear in my head. You're a hopeless hypocrite. You say one thing. You can't do it. So, you know, you're done, right? But listen to me. Our definition of hypocrisy is usually you say one thing and you do something else. Now, just follow me for a moment. If that's the case, if that's the, if that's the only way we really define it, what happens when I stand up here and I preach to all of us that we need to walk in perfect love, especially to our enemies? What happens when I go out and um, I'm really going for it, but then that one person just, man, they just rub me the wrong way and I lose it? Does that mean I'm a hypocrite because I didn't obtain the perfection of love? No, no, no. See, I think what we've got to do, by that standard, all of us are hypocrites then, and I don't believe that's the case. I believe hypocrisy is not saying one thing, doing another. It's saying one thing and having no intention, no willing spirit to go after it. This is completely different. When you are walking with God and you are hungry for him and you fail in the process, you're not a hopeless hypocrite if your spirit is saying, God, here I am again, Lord. I hate this thing in my life. I want to keep walking with you. God responds completely different to that. And again, I just think shame, shame is, uh, is just one of the things that when we don't understand it and we fail like that and we hear that voice, hopeless hypocrite, we let shame get in the way and we don't give God what he's worthy of. So I'm going to ask the worship team just to come up for a moment here. We're going to close. But I really hope that your heart is encouraged that the, the unveiling of the great mystery is to now see Eve as a revelation of the church. And now we know that God's desire is to have a bride that is open to him, is to have a bride that operates with no shame. And here's how I want to close. I'm going to ask the worship team just to, to play a little bit, and, and just I just want to wait on the Lord for just, just a second. I know, actually, we've got better shade this time. Yes, last week, I feel like we were just in the sun baking. I didn't put sunscreen on last week. You should have seen me Sunday night. Right up here, just like a lobster. <laughs> Couldn't bend my forehead. But listen, I, I want to take a moment and just wait upon the Lord. And, I, I, you know, it's, time for ministry is so important. Everything we've done here, it's deeper than just trying to transfer information to you. The whole thing is to stir your heart to encounter him. That's my role. Then I step out of the way and say, Lord, now you work. And all it takes is, it's what we've been sharing. As the bridegroom says, open to me. <laughs> Yield your heart. You'll accomplish more in yielding than you ever will in striving. It's come to me. He does the rest. He does the fulfilling. He does the changing. Our role is just to, to yield and submit to that. And so wherever you are, I mean, if you want to come forward, you're more than welcome. But you could stay, you could even stay where you are. I'm just curious, is anyone brave enough to raise a hand and say, man, shame is something I really struggle with? I got some in the back. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a really important moment. Because I really feel God said he wants to break this. And start you on a path. And so we're just going to give a moment for, for really the Lord to work here. Again, you can, however you want to respond, you can stand where you are. You can stay seated. You, this front is open. It doesn't matter to me. Outside there can be a lot of distractions. So if it helps you, it helps me. Sometimes I just need to close my eyes. So I really just focus in on what the Lord is doing. Holy Spirit, you are so welcome in this place. You are so welcome in this place. We yield our lives to you right now, Holy Spirit. Right now we yield our lives. Lord, I pray for those that raise their hands. I pray for those that have been living with reservation towards you, have been stuck in cycles of sin. And they've been lied to. 
They've been running from you when you've really been calling them to come near. They've certainly heard a voice, but it's not the voice of their father. And I pray, Lord, before we leave this place, Jesus, we need more than a service here. And I'm asking Holy Spirit to move upon every heart and every person that feels bound in this shame, every person that feels like they can't be open with you, Lord. And I pray you just break lies that have just been spoken over them. I pray for a grace to have an understanding of your voice versus any other voice. Help them this week, Lord, that when they hear something that's not from you, they can take it captive. And when they hear a voice that is you, Lord, that they would meditate on it day and night. They would chew on it. I ask God that prophetically that what we'd see from this day forward is eaves rising up before the fall, Lord. Hearts that are completely open. I pray you'd find a church that's cleaving to you. As you have given everything to us, we give everything to you, Lord. Yeah, just continue to wait on them right now. There's no need to rush this. Even in your own words, if you know there's things you've been holding on to, if you know there's things going on in your life, listen, we confess, we repent. That's a daily lifestyle. Intimacy can get distorted through sin. I'm not saying that, but his, the relationship is centered on the Jesus' work. And that's how you grow in grace. Some of us, we, we mess up today and it sets the whole next week is now affected. We feel like we've got to put together a perfect week before we can come back to him. That's a work-based gospel that actually makes you the center of it. Jesus is the Savior. It'll actually lead you to holiness when you understand what he's done. Confidence and love will teach you how to walk in purity. Stuff will start falling off of you by the grace of God. Things that you've taken years to try to beat and you feel like it's actually gotten worse, it'll fall off in a second when you start rejoicing and seeing how he delights over you. Yeah, worship team, just whatever comes to your heart, I just want to worship for a moment. with Jesus. Jesus, what a Savior, what a brother, what a friend, lifter of the lowly. God, you meet me with
I thought I knew what love was It turns out it's better, it's better I thought I knew what love was I thought I knew what love was I thought I knew what love was It turns out it's better, it's better I thought I knew what love was I thought I knew what love was I thought I knew what love was It turns out it's better, it's better I, wanna, I actually want to keep singing that, but as we were just repeating that, I just had a, um, just a picture, maybe because it's so hot out. <laughs> but when you put sunscreen on, when you first put sunscreen on, right, when you put it on, uh, the sunscreen is kind of goopy. You can see the white still, right? And what do you have to do? You got to keep working it in. You got to keep working it in, and then it gets into the skin. And when we're singing songs like this, and we go into these places where there's a measure of repetition, it's not just because it sounds really nice, or we don't know what else to sing, but sometimes we can just easily say things, and really it's just still on the surface. If, if I could use that illustration, it's just, it really hasn't penetrated, it really hasn't affected what we're, uh, who we are. Like David said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He certainly didn't forget them mentally. What he was saying is something's wrong, they're not affecting me anymore. I can say who he is, but yet I'm not being moved by that. And so we've just got to get before him and just start saying, man, your love is better. Your love is better than any wand. Your love is better than anything in this world. We just keep singing. And before you know it, it starts to permeate your soul. Joy begins to arise. Peace begins to arise. Shame begins to break in your life. So I just encourage you just to, just to stay and linger for a moment and just worship God right now. Turns out it's better, it's better. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. Come on, there's a bride rising up. A bride of zeal and passion because we see his passion. Shame has to break in Jesus' name. Victory in Jesus' name. Addictions have to break in Jesus' name. He's the name above every name. Be confident in his love. It turns out it's better. He gave himself up so you can draw near. I thought I knew what love was. Hold nothing back. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. It turns out it's better. It's better. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. It turns out it's better, it's better. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. It turns out it's better, it's better. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. It turns out it's better, it's better. It's better, it's better. I 
thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. It turns out it's better, it's better. Thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. It turns out it's brighter, it's brighter. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. I thought I knew what love was. It turns out it's brighter, it's brighter. Yes. Lord, like the shoe of my bride, we confess that your love is better than wine. It's better than any earthly pleasure. Lord, as we receive this, we want to give it back to you, Lord. Lord, we want to offer everything up to you. We want to be set apart, consecrated unto you, Lord. But Lord, I ask that just the revelation of your goodness, your passion, your beauty would be the thing that pulls us. Lord, I just pray for, uh, for, the, for, for manipulation to be broken, and I pray for your beauty to start motivating people. I, I pray, God, that, that coercion would be crushed, but you, they would be compelled by your loveliness, God, for this is the marks of the bridal generation. I just pray, God, that people are being forced by, by fear, but they're just being drawn by your irresistible attraction, Lord, that in every way you're altogether lovely. In every season you're altogether lovely. No matter what we walk through, the highs and the lows, you are altogether lovely. So you're worthy of it all. And I pray, Holy Spirit, what you've done here this morning, that you would just seal it. Seal the work in hearts. In fact, I pray it would begin to multiply quickly. Fruit would begin to grow quickly from what you've done. I pray even shifts in lifestyles this week. Things that just not important are dead. And the things that are bearing fruit would begin to increase. I just speak that over every person here. And I pray you'd seal it. Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm actually going to ask uh, Vicky if you would be okay. Vicky and uh, Don, I, Don's hiding out in the back. <laughs> I see him though. Uh, but for anyone, I see some people standing up here. But if anyone would like personal prayer, uh, we'll have some people to pray if you'd like to stick around. But um, yeah, you're more than welcome to hang out. We love you guys. And uh, we'll see you at the very least. We'll see you next week. All right. God bless you guys. If you need prayer, we'll have some people up here to pray.
you're asking me to come, I won't hide, I will run to you. You're asking me to come, you're beckoning, come. Oh Jesus, I hear your voice, I won't hide, I will run to you. You see everything, still you call me by my 